Today's conversation is brought to you by CareNet. The pro-choice argument is gaining increasing traction in society and among Christians. But does this philosophy fall in line with Jesus' words and example? CareNet's new e-booklet, Is the Pro-Choice Position Consistent with the Life and Teachings of Jesus?, explores the biblical case for life in the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, the Good Samaritan, and more. Download your free copy at care-net.org, click on Free Resources, and choose Is the Pro-Choice Position Consistent with the Life and Teachings of Jesus at care-net.org. We try to look for where light is breaking through in the midst of darkness. And that is where we try to center ourselves and keep our focus. Because if you look at the darkness, it will feel like it is overpowering. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. The conflict in Israel and Gaza weighs heavily on our minds and hearts. We are grieved for the loss of life, for the extreme hardship for people suffering in the region. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Today, we talk with Lanre Williams Ayadun of World Relief to help us understand the complexities of providing aid in conflict zones. Lanre, thanks for joining us in this really important conversation. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Lunray, I've known you for a bit of time, but um, I'd love for you to share uh, your role at World Relief, a bit about World Relief itself. Yeah. Uh, World Relief is a global Christian humanitarian organization. We partner with the local church and local communities to bring lasting change Uh We want to address some of the most pressing problems that are happening across the world. And so we have solutions in community development, church engagement, health, nutrition, agriculture, child development, the gamut of uh, services that people need when they are in crisis. Over our 80-year history, we have responded to humanitarian crises in over 100 countries. And uh, in the U.S., we work in refugee resettlement. I have the distinct honor and pleasure of leading our team that implements programs outside of the U.S., uh, so that's in countries across Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. So there are a lot of humanitarian groups uh, throughout the world. This is a whole category. Some of them are Christians. Many of them are Christians, but others are affiliated with different faiths or are secular. What, what is the distinctly biblical basis for humanitarian work? I love this question because I believe that humanitarian response is really at the heart of living out the gospel. You know, Jesus came into the world and said that he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that he had come to, um, to speak to the, to those that were imprisoned, to those that were suffering. And he gave his disciples the mandate to go and proclaim that he had come to set things right and that we should go out and do the same. And humanitarian response essentially is trying to save lives and alleviate suffering. I can't think of a better way to proclaim the coming of the Lord, to say that we are here as Jesus's hands and feet to bring hope and help to those that are suffering. I think that 
we as Christians are able to do this in a way that proclaims that we believe that Jesus is coming to set things back right. And we might not be able to do it in full right now because we are still on earth and this side of heaven, but there is a role that we can play to help to bring hope and help to people that are going through really hard things. Lonnery, I've had the privilege, um, really the deep encouragement to see some of this work up front, not only stateside, but internationally. My family had a chance to visit Malawi, uh, Africa, and see some of the very powerful work that's occurring. These um, villages uh, are often inaccessible with the type of help that you're talking about. It's like a holistic gospel, you know, everything from sustainable farming practices and uh, vocational training, but Bible studies for tribal chieftains and prayer centers. And it's really this beautiful picture um, of God's work uh, in and through his followers to bring transformation. That's right. You know, what, what we are trying to do as World Relief is to bring human flourishing. We want people to flourish um, physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually. And that is, it is amazing work. And it is, I believe, deeply biblical that we are carrying out what it is that Jesus called us to do as believers and really empowering and working with local communities so that those skills and those competencies stay there even after World Relief has left. I have a picture of what this looks like in a setting that wasn't fraught with conflict that really was trying to address some long-standing structural issues in society in those communities. Um, but right now, uh, Israel, Gaza is front and center in the media and our attention. And we can certainly talk a bit about that region, but there are other regions of the world that are also experiencing conflict and they deserve our attention. We have something really important to learn about what uh, can happen in those places. Um, share a little bit about what's going on in some of these places in the world. Yeah, um, thanks for this question. You know, the the media cycle uh, can be fickle and things come in and out of media, but there are unfortunately a lot of what we call neglected crises around the world. And so in Sudan, for example, there's been a war that's been raging since April of 2023. Um, over 5 million people have been displaced from their homes. Um, the fighting continues right now. A lot of people, including World Relief staff, have become refugees in neighboring countries. Um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, folks might be aware that that country has uh, had a history of conflict, but the latest crisis is quite dire. The reports are saying that more people have been displaced in a shorter amount of time than has ever happened in the history of that country. You have about 12 million people that are in need of humanitarian assistance. And to date, the response has been really kind of muted. We have about $1 per week for the people that need this um, aid. And so the response is really quite difficult. There are millions of people that are internally displaced inside of the DRC, and it's spilling over to the neighboring countries and causing conflict there as well. Of course, we can't forget the war in Ukraine that's been raging. Um, and then there are countries like Haiti, where you've just had this 
constant uh, struggle and tension between gangs and community members that just makes it very difficult for people to live um, with a sense of security or safety um, or for humanitarian actors to respond. So um, it's overwhelming Mm -hmm. to hear this and it's representative of many other kinds of conflicts that um, exist throughout the world. Let's um, circle back and kind of break down some categories. Um, So there are natural disasters that create humanitarian crises. There are also kind of long-term issues. Uh, Last summer, World Relief, the Evangelical Environmental Network, NAE, we all worked together uh, to talk about and to write a report on the impacts of this changing climate on natural disasters and and their uh, impact on kind of the most vulnerable throughout the world. So you, you have that kind of category, uh, but you've been describing a different kind of category, a category precipitated by political conflicts. Mm-hmm. And um, describe a bit of the differences uh, of response from one to the other, and what are the unique challenges of humanitarian response in conflict areas? Yeah, I think when you're dealing with a conflict, the first consideration that we have is safety. And so first, it's the safety of our staff, the folks that we're hoping to be able to respond. Um, In Sudan, for example, uh, once the the fighting started, we had to kind of shut down our program um, response, shut down our offices so that our staff would be safe. We actually ended up having to evacuate some staff outside of the capital city so that they could uh, be safe. And so uh, safety is a big is a big issue for the responders, but then also safety for the affected populations. Once we had uh, kind of hibernated our our operations and gotten our staff to safer places, they wanted to turn right back around and serve their brothers and sisters in communities. But then some communities are cut off because of the fighting. And so trying to figure out how to maintain the safety of the affected population. And then we're trying to bring in goods and services. Um, in Sudan, for example, we wanted to bring in food, water, soap, just some basic um, supplies that people would need to be able to live. But we have to think about the safety of those things as well as we're moving them from one place to the other. So safety and security is a big consideration. A lot of times we have to pull out of a country, stage someplace else, and then come back into the affected community. So that's um, that's one of the considerations. The other thing that becomes more complicated in a conflict setting is coordination. As humanitarians, we don't want to take over kind of the response in a country for the most part. We want to work with the government. We want to empower local actors to bring their own solutions. We want to come alongside them in a supporting kind of role. But when you're dealing with conflict, the government may be compromised, the government itself or government actors may themselves be the aggressor. And then coordination becomes very difficult where the government might bring all of the NGO partners together and say, let's talk about who takes what geography or who takes what service. That kind of coordination role may not be available. 
in Sudan, for example, once the war broke out, World Relief was the one that was coordinating the NGO partners. We were the lead of the NGO forum. And so we were bringing people together to the table to say, all right, how do we um, mount this response? Who has uh, supplies and people where? Uh, who has a security um, apparatus that can get us uh, to the affected communities. So that coordination becomes more difficult um, in a conflict setting, whereas in a uh, uh, climate disaster, for example, that, that coordination is a little bit easier. Mm. So the role that um, NGOs play uh, in collaboration, describe that a little bit more. Um because it, 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 you know, in a world in which we're so used to competing businesses or competing platforms for our attention, you're describing something quite different that um, organizations are collaborators. Is, is this correct? That what I'm hearing? It is. It is. I don't want to be too simplistic about it. The truth is there is still competition and, and the collaboration is not perfect. But there is, because in, in a humanitarian response, we have a charter. We have humanitarian principles that we try to abide to regardless of who the who the responder is. And so we have things that guide us talking about uh, neutrality, making sure that, again, our aim is to save lives and to alleviate suffering. And everybody subscribes to that. And so we're really trying to see how can we do the most good? How can we prevent the most suffering? And so it has been very um uh, I think fulfilling to see that there is a cluster system usually that gets stood up. And so there will be a health cluster, there will be a shelter cluster, there might be a nutrition cluster. And so all of the partners that have expertise in those areas will come together and take a look at how can we best respond? Again, who has the supplies, who has the funding, who has the staffing to be able to do different things? And uh, the cluster system is I think uh, it's wonderful. I wish that it would extend to non-emergency settings so that we could coordinate um, a lot better. But it has been, it's been really gratifying to see and to see the fact that uh, World Relief and other actors like us can play that convening role. We can help to bring people together to set up um, cluster systems and to respond um, in, in a coordinated manner. We want to make sure that we're not duplicating efforts and that we're covering um, the largest kind of uh, area and numbers of people as possible. Mm. So it's really interesting to hear that there is this kind of charter that's out there that helps guide uh, different humanitarian uh, efforts in something that's maybe a standard set of practices or commitments and principles. Is this correct? That's that's right. There is a humanitarian charter, and then there are core humanitarian principles that guide us. And so you can have organizations that have that certification, that have signed on to those conventions, and those kind of hold us to practices around impartiality, to neutrality, to um, making sure that people have access to um, services and to aid, um, and that we are doing no harm um, for the affected population and also that we're engaging the affected population. You know, that's one of the things that we really embrace at World Relief is making sure that even in humanitarian settings, that as much as possible, we are talking to the affected populations. We're asking them, what services do you need? What is most critical to you at this time? 
Um, I was recently in Chad and we were in a refugee um, camp. And this refugee camp uh, was hosting refugees that had come across the border from Sudan into Chad. We had a plan that we were going to go in and provide soap and high energy biscuits for children. Um, these were things that we'd been told were, were needs that the community had. The children weren't getting enough nutrition and they didn't have basic sanitation. So uh, soap was going to be a really uh, needed commodity. We had a finite amount of resources and we had decided that we were going to provide these items to the refugees that had just recently come across the border. But when we got to the camp, we sat down with the camp leadership and we said this is what we've come to do and you know we want your blessing to be able to go ahead and do this and they said to us well you know your plan is to provide just to refugees that have just arrived but we have refugees that have been in this camp for a long time we would rather decrease the amount that uh the new folks will get so that everybody can get something and they all agreed that yes we will each take less so that more people can have more and that was a beautiful lesson to me to hear people that are in themselves in very dire need saying, no, we want to spread whatever good it is that's coming. We want to spread it. Um, and we want you to take direction from us about how to do this response. And so we did. Um, we thought that our response would take a day and a half. We ended up doing it over three and a half days so that we could cover more people um, and do what the community was asking us to do. That gives us a really good picture that the collaboration is not just between organizations. You, you know, you've given us an imagination for what that looks like to actually engage and not just serve, um, but to serve with and alongside um, the, even the effective uh, community. Um, it's also heartbreaking uh, to see this humanitarian work unfold in the dire physical needs, just that children would be longing to have a biscuit, um, to have the energy to make it through a day. I mean, that's heartbreaking. Um, and that must lead to all sorts of emotional and spiritual traumas. Uh, you had mentioned that, that the kind of flourishing includes a spiritual, physical, emotional, all these things. Um, is that a part of the humanitarian crisis response or does that come later to deal with the ongoing emotional and spiritual mental traumas? I'll answer that question on several levels. I think that it depends. For example, in Ukraine, when the war first broke out, you know, we were immediately looking for the helpers. I think it's uh, Mr. Rogers that says, look for the helpers. We were immediately looking for the helpers. And we found that the first people that were mounting a response kind of homegrown were pastors. These were people that were sending their congregations out and they themselves were returning to the middle of the conflict to try to see how they could support. And these are not humanitarians in the kind of classical definition, right? These were pastors that were just trying to do good. But we started to come alongside them and say, this is the way that you can set up a shelter um, for people that are transiting through your community. This is the way that you can set up a warehouse to do food distribution or blanket distribution. We were coming alongside them to provide that kind of technical support that we have the skills to do. But they were also providing the psychosocial kind of mental health support that they were trained to do. 
And so as people were coming through these shelters, people would stay for three or four days as they were trying to figure out kind of how to get out of the most affected communities, get to the border, cross country, et cetera. And we were coming alongside to provide that technical assistance for tangible needs and freeing up the pastors to be able to sit with someone and to be able to hold someone's hand and to do art with the children to allow them to express themselves. And so where possible, we do try to take a look at the psychological um, toll that living through a crisis can create, and particularly in enabling pastors um, and church community to come alongside and provide that support. Obviously, we're also looking at how to support the supporters. And so how do we provide mental health care for our staff? Um, and for the folks that we provide um, at World Relief, we've really uh, taken that on and invested in having uh, counselors that are available to our team. We do trauma check-ins um, with folks, stress check-ins, so that um, even our team has uh, resources that are available to them to be able to process the things that they are seeing. Because like you said, it's difficult um, and uh, dealing with this. And I think in our current environment where we see crisis after crisis and complicated types of crisis, you know, something that starts out as a political uh, conflict becomes a livelihood conflict, becomes um, a health a disaster in Sudan, for example, on top of the war, there's currently a cholera outbreak. Mm which is a health disaster. And so you have all of these things that compound. It can be very difficult to kind of keep hope alive and to keep um, moving in this space. And so uh, acknowledging the the mental health burden that people are facing and trying to equip um, pastors, uh, counselors that exist in those communities to, to support um, and also bringing in external support um, for those services. Mm. So, Landre, how how does someone work through the theological issues, anger with God, uh, despair about human nature? Um, I mean, these are really difficult questions, just generally sitting in an armchair in suburbia just to process but when you're experiencing it with the emotional weight and the actual physical traumas that you're seeing, how do you, how do, how do your staff work through these? Where are you, God, in all of this? I try to, and I know that my staff try to look for the light. We try to look for where light is breaking through in the midst of darkness. And that is where we try to center ourselves and keep our focus. Because if you look at the darkness, it will feel like it is overpowering. And so we love to retell the stories of where we see the light. Um, one of them, for example, um, that we've been telling ourselves over and over again in South Sudan, um, there's an ongoing, there's ongoing, uh, conflict. There's ongoing, uh, climate disasters that are happening. And the war in Sudan is also displacing a lot of people into South Sudan. And in South Sudan, World Relief is one of the implementers of nutrition centers. And so we're providing nutrition support, uh, particularly to severely malnourished children. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult work and we don't always see, um, 
a success story. It is, it is very difficult, but we are one of the implementers, um, in a very large camp for internally displaced people. And at the World Relief Center, there's always a line. And, you know, our staff was asking, why is there a line here when there are other places that you could go? And people say, oh, those World Relief people, they pray before they open their center. And we don't know how it works, but their prayer and their medicine, it works differently. We want to be at the World Relief Center. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me is light. That is light. That is the witness. That is the power of the Holy Spirit working behind the scenes that people are seeing a difference. People are seeing a reason to hope. Even though this is difficult work, they are seeing that there is a reason to hope. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in Ukraine, the same thing. You know, the pastors were the ones who had started this response just on their own. They were opening up their churches, moving pews aside and setting up cots. They were using their own money to buy food and water and begin to support people. It's those types of things that give me hope where I say, yes, the light is breaking through and um, God is at work. God is doing something and he is working through our staff and he is helping us even if it is one life that we are affecting, we are doing something that is good. And hopefully that catches on and people catch the vision of that. And people, people's hearts are broken and are moved to support. Um, so that, that is how I keep hope. I think also just being able to pray with my staff, you know, before we enter into a situation, while we're in a situation, we are in prayer constantly for these things. And we believe that prayer changes things, you know, prayer changes things and prayer is effective. It is the biggest response tool that we have. And so mm-hmm. we deploy it a lot. Um, I think that's what I can say. It is, it is difficult. And I think there are days where even I feel like, God, is this even, is this even helping? Mm-hmm. Is this doing something? And, uh, I'm thankful that I hear those stories of light breaking through. Hmm. What, what can we learn that may not be applied directly in being in Israel and Gaza? humanitarian aid or in Sudan or Ukraine, but we're here in our communities all across the country. Uh, and there are needs that still exist um, right here. Uh, those who are stuck in poverty and other forms of traumas. Um, so what are some principles that could translate to us um, as Christians? Uh, how would you challenge us? What what can we be praying? What can we be doing even in our own context? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the passages of scripture that I that I love and that um, I kind of hold on to is in James chapter two. Um, and James is talking about faith and work and, and, and the mix there. Right. And he says, you know, uh, suppose a brother or sister is without food or, or clothes. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about those physical needs, like of what good is that? 
And I hold on to that. And I think to myself, like as much as I have, you know, thoughts and prayers and well wishes and things, like I have a mandate as part of my faith expression to put some legs on that, (laughs) to put some hands on that. And it can't always be my own physical hands and feet, but it can be somebody's. And so I I, I think, and I want to challenge folks um, to think about how to put some uh, some feet and some hands behind uh, the the heartbreak and the overwhelm of looking at so much crisis around the world. And so organizations like World Relief, but other organizations as well um, that are responding, I think um, people have a desire to give. And sometimes we'll get people asking, oh, can I give a physical item? Can I, can I ship something? And I just want to say cash is always best because it's easier to get um, to the place. And it also allows us to continue to support the local market, local businesses. And again, we want to continue to build systems that will last after us. Um, so cash is best. I think also that um, prayer, as I mentioned, is our best tool. Um, recently, somebody said to me that, you know, God calls himself the Prince of Peace because we might be tempted to think that we can manufacture peace or find peace somewhere else and that it is only in him, you know, that, and so praying to God to be the Prince of Peace, to show up um, with his peace in the situations around the world, you know, whether that is to change the hearts of political leaders, to allow for aid um, to get into places where people are hurting, to bring resources to the responders, to protect and to cover those that are responding. Those are always good things to pray and good ways um, to pray. Um, yeah, I think those are those are the things. Give as you feel led um, and pray. There are so many... Um, opportunities to serve because the needs are really that great around the world. And we've been discussing some, some of the most critical areas, but there are many, many, many more all throughout and uh, resonate with people in different ways because of our life stories. And so there is an opportunity as overwhelming as it may seem. What I'm hearing you is start somewhere, Let's start, start somewhere, pray something, move in some way. And That's, and God could use that. Absolutely. I think the needs are the needs are immense. The needs are immense. And particularly in the kinds of crisis that we are seeing now, the needs are all encompassing. We're talking about health needs, water and sanitation needs, child protection needs, um, psychosocial needs, needs for shelter. There are any number of needs that exist. And so whatever your heart is pulled towards, find the people that are doing good work, that are abiding by humanitarian principles, and that are able to to respond um, in those ways. Absolutely. Mm. Um, Send us off with a final word of encouragement or challenge that um, would would bring us to this sense of coming to this Prince of Peace who has the answer. What what final word would you send us off with? I think just to say that God is on the move. God is not far away in these crises. And I think that we are at a really critical time where we as believers have something that the world is looking for. 
I was recently at a global humanitarian conference and I was speaking as a representative of World Relief. And I cannot tell you the number of people that came to me and said, what you spoke about really resonated with me. I want to talk to you more about this Christian humanitarian response that you have going on because people are looking for hope. Humanitarians are feeling overwhelmed with the, the magnitude and the nature of the disasters that we're facing. They are looking for hope. And as Christians, we have the answer of hope. We know that God in the end sets everything right. And so we know and we are responding from a place of hope and from a place of victory. The rest of the world does not have that. And so I feel like as Christians, we have this amazing opportunity right now to step into these things in a way that I believe can change the trajectory of the way that affected populations live through the crisis that they're um, that they're witnessing, but also the way that humanitarians respond, uh, hopefully in a more compassionate, hopeful way. So I just want to say that as much as it is overwhelming, um, this is the moment, and we have a particular um, advantage uh, by being believers and working in this space. So good. Our guest on today's conversation has been Lanray Williams Ayadun. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Lanray. Thank you so much. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.